0: Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwine's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwine's to service their gear. Head over to Volkwinesmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V O L K W E I N S music.com, helping people discover music since 1888.
1: Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship
0: Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content
1: provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice.
2: Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hi, Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast listeners. My
0: name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Jason Morris joins us today. After selling a successful business he founded, he became a venture capitalist and invests in startups, background screening companies, and in the industries of live music and NFTs. Among the many things he does, he's the manager for Eminence Ensemble, a rock fusion jam band out of Denver. Jason, thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, talking about that shift from, um, you know, um, the record labels were loved uh, when CDs came out, right? Because they got to sell the same music they already had in their catalog again on a new format. And then to your point, so they're swimming in money and Napster comes along. And totally blows that model out of the water. But I think what's happened to your point over the last twenty years is the public perception of the value of music has changed, right? Because if I can listen to anything anywhere whenever I want for free, I have to listen to some commercials or something, or I pay a, you know ten bucks a month and I can do it ad free. the the val- The perception of the value of that experience, that listening experience, is just gone. So to to your point, I I think it's. I think the resurgence of vinyl is one, um, indicator that, yeah, uh, people actually are kind of like this tangible thing. Uh, but now the next wave of that, the next innovation of that, I think, I think you're right is, is this token tokenization of releases or, um, intellectual property.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I've got, you know, a kind of a narrow view of it. I've got, I've got two daughters, one's 22 and one's, one's 18 and I'm kind of watching my 18-year-old daughter now dust off all my vinyl, and she's yeah. got, a, got a record player for for uh, her birthday this year. Nice. And she's been, like, just listening to every one of them that she possibly can. And to me, you know, have you guys ever had that that just punch you in the stomach moment when you heard <laughs> – Nirvana Nevermind for the first time or Led Zeppelin, you know, one for the first, like that feeling, you just don't get anymore. Um, right. I, I've heard great debut albums on Spotify, but I didn't own it. You know, it wasn't mine. I didn't own a piece of it. And I think that when you have something in your hands or in your collection, it, it changes the ballgame. And I'm watching her and, and I'm talking with her about, you know, you can't, when you, when you find out about a new band today, you're finding it out online, you click on, you listen to a couple of tracks and you might like it or not like it, but... When I was a kid, you heard about it because like you saw a new album coming out at the record store on on a list and you like went the day that it came out so you could hear it and you might have mm-hmm. bought it and it was that whole experience and and you just don't you just don't have that anymore. Yeah. Um one of my favorite and I, I'm sorry I'm rambling on here but it's one of my no, favorite great. Yeah. favorite antidotes and favorite stories um a couple of years ago when I started getting I'm not really into vinyl but I have you know I have a bunch of it. Um I bought a a first print copy of Led Zeppelin one. And, and before I listened to it, I was like, all right, so I want to picture this as a 15 year old kid in 1969. Like, how did I come about it? How did I hear about it? You know, I was at the record store or I was talking to a friend or a friend's older brother that had it. I got to hear it. Um, But I, I took a little bit of a deeper dive and I was like, what were the biggest songs in January of 1969 who were the biggest artists on the Billboard charts and it was like folky stuff like Donovan and you know Bob Dylan who I love you know Beatles like great music but then you're this 15 year old kid and you get this record and you bring it home and you drop the needle down and the first thing you hear is good times bad times the, the first song on their first debut album and it was so different than anything that you'd ever heard ever that what that feeling must have felt like. And when I dropped that needle down, you know, 40 years later, I had that same feeling because I was thinking about it in that way. And I really do believe that NFTs, because now you, you can own this piece of history, can bring that feeling back to the consumer.
0: Yeah. And, and that's unfolding in real time. I mean, it's developing right now. So who knows where it's going to go? Who knows? Right. So I imagine, you know, I mean, we always hear venture capitalists, they want to get the most they can get out of a business with the least amount of risk. So I, I imagine there's more potential for growth with less risk in the fashion area than in other arts genres. So if there's a fashion designer listening who maybe they're on the cusp of breaking out, what should they know about the process of finding a venture capital, a venture capitalist, and what will they have to provide so that they or you can do their due diligence?
1: Well, first, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you're trying to get the most uh, shares for the least amount of money. Everybody, in my, in, I'm sure that there's people that do that. Um, mm-hmm. But in everybody, you have to be fair. Um, everybody's, mm-hmm. got, everybody's got to make money. Um, everybody's got to be fair to each other. And I think that the, 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 the founders that really understand the value of capital— and how that plays into your goals and your future versus people that just want money. Um, that's what I look for. Um, I'm also looking for people, not the business idea necessarily, because businesses Mm -hmm. tend to pivot. Um, and you know, if, if you don't believe in the leaders of the business and their passion for it, Um, It's really not going to go anywhere. So one of my things with with Lively was, you know, you you talk to Mark Brownstein for five minutes or talk to Alicia for five minutes. You're going to hear the passion. They really, truly believe from the inside because they know the business that this is a game changer. Um, I've got other businesses I'm involved with where, you know, I threw the guys some money because I believed in them. And if this didn't work out, I don't want a chance at their next one because I knew what they learned from failing at the first one. Um, so I think the person is really, really important, whether are in fashion or art or, 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 music, um, make sure that that passion that you have for your business really, really shows through. Cause that's the first thing I'm going to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, is there anything that they should prepare for that first meeting or subsequent meetings?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously a deck, um, it's, it seems so like, Pass say that, you know, everybody just wants to get a deck. Well, a deck's important. You really got to show what your business is on paper and understand that when you pitch it to them, they're probably going to pick up about 20% of what you're saying. Um, most most investors and entrepreneurs are multitasking and everything else. So you're not going to really get the full pitch across um, with just a pitch. So the deck is something that's a good leave behind. It, it shows your vision for the business, how you're going to spend the money, um, how you're going to make money, how the investor is going to make money. I think that's really, really important and spending as much one-on-one time with the investor, I think is also important.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, investment, uh, from venture capital and, and from individuals and that sort of thing. Uh, but the reality is, is that most, most businesses start with no outside capital, meaning it's self-funded by, by an individual particularly, and especially in, in the arts. I think it's, it's probably particularly true. Um, you know, just as a sole proprietor going out and selling their services or their goods or whatever. Um, so what advice might you have to someone who is bootstrapping their, their venture?
1: Uh, bootstrapping is great. Um, but you have to treat your business. And my, I, this is, I'm stealing the words of my partner less. Um, it, you have to build like a plant, you know, you put the seed in, you got to water it, you got to take care of it. You don't take the fruit off of it right away. You know, you can't do that. The fruit helps the, business, the, the, the plant grow. Um, so if you're going to bootstrap, it's really taking care of it, like thinking a couple years, you know, in advance. Um, I, 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 I like a hybrid of bootstrapping for, and, and getting some capital. You know, it, it's become, you know, when I started my business, startups weren't really even a, a thing. Um, you know, you, you bootstrap, but you got some money from somebody your fam- families and friends and, and you ran your business. We, we were fortunate enough where we did that for very little money and we were able to make a profit right away, never lost money. So we were able to build on that, but it, it really takes capital in today's world because it's an arms race. You know, if you have two guys that have two ladies, whatever, that have the same business idea and this person gets a million dollars and this one's bootstrapping, like as a consumer, who's buying the product, like, which am I going to buy? The one that's well-funded and is is putting their marketing out there and looks like a great, solid company, or this guy that's bootstrapping it? I'm not that's saying this one's... Gonna,
2: re- that's what I was going to say, is which one are they going to know about? It's the, the one with the, right?
1: Right, right. So I think that the, the value of capital can't be understated. Right. Um, capital, you, you really can't grow a business today effectively and scalably without without capital.
0: So... This kind of goes back to a statement you had mentioned about people with passion and things like that. I mean, along with that passion comes identity and, and goals. So I, I've spoken with hundreds of arts entrepreneurs over the years, and many see the businesses they started as an extension of themselves. Do founders have a difficult time giving up control or at least having, a plan, having to plan a vision with someone else?
1: Yes. Um, g- even good ones. Um, it's, it's very hard to give up control and it's very hard to tell somebody else how to raise your baby. Um, but good entrepreneurs, especially uh, people will disagree with this, but I love entrepreneurs that have failed a couple of times because especially if they have the personality where they can look that there's somebody that will learn from their mistakes. Um, so being able to see that and put that into perspective, um, I I think is 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 really really important. I just went off on a tangent, so I can't remember the original question. But
0: um, (laughs) well, do do they have uh, a difficult time? Do founders have a difficult time giving up control? Whether it's a little bit of control, total control to someone else who's investing in the business.
1: Yeah, and again, building off what I said earlier, you know, for an investor, for an investor like me, um, I don't invest unless there is some sort of control. because you know, if I'm just going to invest in something that I think I'll make money back at, I'll I'll put it in, in equities or stocks or something like that. When I'm investing in a company, it's because I want to get involved. Um, so you know, that's just the way I do it. I'm not saying that that's right. the way venture capitalists, you know, capitalists do it, but that's my the way I do it. Um, so you know, and I tell people right you know right off the bat, like I'm I'm working on a deal right now that we're trying to buy a significant stake of a company and. Um, you know, we're very adamant that we want to be a part of this. We want to help grow this company. That's why we're putting the money into the company. Um, so I think that if you're clear in the beginning, um, things tend to work out a lot better. With with my business, you know, the three of us agreed on day one that if we the three of us didn't agree, we weren't going to do it. You know, if you couldn't mm-hmm. convince one of the other two or the other two, um, then it would just be something we'd table and, and take take more time with developing the the, the right path for it. Um, so, I think that having those conversations on day one is really, really key.
2: Yeah. And so, I can imagine you've had similar conversations with the band that you're working with, um, Eminence Ensemble. Um, do, do, can you think of any examples where maybe you've had to make a business decision that was maybe at odds or at conflict with um, an artistic vision?
1: So with the, with the band, I operate a little bit differently when it comes to the artistic vision of the business. And it's good timing because we have a new album coming out in April or May. Um, we're not sure exactly when we're releasing it. But, you know, now we're talking, having discussions about the order of the songs and mm. about the album art. Um, and I tend to not get involved with the creative stuff. Uh, that's them. But I will guide them. You know, I will mm. give them my opinion. But I'll even when I give them my opinion... I will say, I don't want you to say it because it's, or do this because it's my opinion. You guys are the artists. Um, so, like, for the order of the songs on the album, I had my thoughts. They had their thoughts. We came to a commonality. Some guys in the band don't care, um, mm. you know, about the same thing with the art. Like, there might be one or two people that just don't care, and the other four do care. So we just kind of work through those discussions and bring our perspectives and hopefully come to a resolution on it. But I try to stay out of the creative part of it, but I will give my opinion Not on the business side of it. Um, that's where, where I do come in. So a good example would be, you know, we're trying to decide this album that we just did uh, would not fit on one vinyl. It, it'd have to be a right. double vinyl, um, which can be very, very expensive um, to produce. And it's just inventory that you're keeping while you're trying to sell it. And I said, look, you know, we can certainly do this. But that, you know, amount of money that we would have to lay out for that is less money that we can put into here, here, and here. Because it's not an infinite amount of money. Um, so we made we came up with that decision together. Even though they're very passionate about wanting to do vinyl, um, it just didn't make sense when we're trying to get as many eyeballs on our band name as possible. Right. Spending that kind of money there doesn't make any sense. Now, what it does do is it gives us if if the if the album takes off and the band you know starts you know hockey sticking up a little bit, we can re-release that album as a vinyl in a year. Yeah. So you know, there's other yeah. op- opportunities for that. Yeah. Cool.
0: Jason, you mentioned that you're investing in uh, in a teaching platform. So I'm wondering, have you thought about investing in other aspects of the band's ecosystem? So maybe recording studios or performance venues?
1: Probably not. Um, I am looking, I mean, my, my overall vision is to, is to have kind of a music empire and, and have, you know, different investments in different verticals of music. Um, whether that happens on a grand scale or a small scale, I, I just don't know yet the the market right now just sucks, so it's hard to think that far in advance. Um, but I, I, I think venue. I would. I don't know if I'd want to own a venue, but I would. I would probably want to be a part of a venue, um, or, or owner, or, or a piece of a venue. Yeah. A recording probably not. Um, but there are other pieces of the music business that I'm very, very interested in. Maybe, maybe owning a management company down the road, or or a, or, or a agent booking agency, mm-hmm. something like that could be could be desirable. Yeah.
2: Well, we we all know Live Nation could use some competition, so uh, feel free to step up. (laughs) Uh, We've reached the part of the interview, Jason, where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. And the first question is, what advice would you give to others who want to become an entrepreneur in music, a a musician, starting Um, a band?
1: So what advice would I give to other entrepreneurs? I would say find the one thing, not the 10 things, but the one thing that you're most passionate about that you really believe you could monetize. And it's it's a hard thought process because I was just having this discussion with one of our founders last week. One of the hardest things in the world to do is separate somebody from their money, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to make sure that you have an idea that you're passionate enough about that you can convince somebody to give up what they worked hard for to you to get some sort of value out of. So, you know, and, and, and that for me, that's, that's one of the, one of the biggest things when I'm, when I'm talking to a founder, um, passion is just, it's, it's so significant, um, because you know, I, like I, I never sold a back on check in my life. I sold myself, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it's being able to, th- th- to, to, throw that passion through your pitch and everything else. So I would say that's, I would, that, that's probably my number one. I don't even know what number two would be. Yeah.
0: So our second question is, what can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience?
1: Thought leadership. Um, I, think, I think thought leadership is key. I've had, this, uh, I've had this nonprofit idea for the music business for so many years that I'm eventually going to develop, but it's just a way, like incubators for musicians to be able to come together and form bands. Um, and, 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 and the people that are around the music business – the uh, agents and the managers and the lighting designers and the sound engineers that are also up and coming that want to get involved with these up and coming groups to be able to um, take that and run with it. So I, I think um, the arts in general need to fund things like that to make arts more accessible to people. It used to be that you learned music in school and now some schools don't even teach music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, I think it's really important and incumbent upon places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and and even the Art Museum and stuff like that to really start funding the younger generations.
2: Yeah. And lastly, what's the best uh, entrepreneurial advice you've ever received?
1: Hmm. Well, there's been a couple. Um, One of them I learned more recently. Um, I had a great mentor when I sold the business uh, to Sterling. He was the president of the company, kind of Richard Selden one of the best salesmen I've ever seen. Um, and he gave a little presentation to a group of leaders at the business and he gave us a quote by a guy named Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 50s. And it's a big, long quote, but the way it ends is luck is the residue of design. There's no such thing as luck. <laughs> um, so I, I think that was really, really good advice. Um, you've got to work hard in order to make something happen and, and luck is not really a big part of it. Um, the second thing would be, um, focus, um, and the third would be growth, um, learning how to grow and scale your business. Um, I could probably think of some more poignant things that I've learned along the way. I've learned a lot about pricing and psychology of pricing and stuff like that too. That have been great in my career, but I think those would be the three biggest things.
0: Yeah. That's a, it's a great way to end. It's been a lot of fun.
1: I agree.
2: (laughs) Yep. Thanks for your time today, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit
1: artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast.